Last week we kind of talked a little bit about the fact that we're going to be studying the parables. Here's a couple of things I'm going to summarize from last week really quickly. Four points. When we said why even study the parables, the four points we covered, I've kind of narrowed them down. Jesus taught in parables. If he taught in parables, maybe we should learn to teach that way. He obviously used them for a reason. Two, the parables are truth illustrated. They give us a tangible way of seeing the truth. Okay, It's a good way to understand difficult concepts. It's a good way for us to learn, and it's a good memory device. Most of us can remember stories. If I just stood up here and just preached straight doctrine, maybe 10 or 15% of it would impact you. If I told you four or five stories in a row, you would probably remember four out of the five. Just because the way that we're wired, and I think Jesus knew that. Also, as we're going through this series to take it that level deeper that we like to go, I've been saying that not only are we going to look at the central message of the parable, but I'm going to try in each parable to point out something that maybe you haven't seen before. Last week we hit two of the parables and tried to do that, the parable of the sower. We were looking at that parable from a different perspective. We've heard the parable many times, but we were looking at the sower himself last week and how he was carelessly throwing that seed all over the place, not being a careful sower in terms of putting it only in the good ground. Okay? We did the same thing with our other parable about the workers in the vineyard, understanding why people use that parable. All right, why did Jesus speak in parables? Number one, to reveal truth in an interesting form and to create more interest. What does it mean to create more interest? You're going to see in a moment that he was trying to hide the truth from some and give it to others. Jesus was genuinely interested in planting a seed to see who was really interested in going further. I'm familiar with something called hide the ball because when you're in law school, that's the way they teach us. They do this thing that we call hide the ball. The professor stands and he asks a series of probing questions. And then he says, okay, let's just move on. And you're like, what was that about? Why did you do that to us? It's called the Socratic method. And the reason that people do that rather than just straight lecture is because when you pique people's interest, when you give them just a little bit of it, you find out which of the people in your class are genuinely interested enough to want to find out the answer on their own. And once you find out the answer on your own, you've now done something. You haven't just memorized. You haven't just listened and forgotten. You've actually learned because you sought out the answer on your own. So as a backdrop, that's why Jesus spoke in parables. Okay. Another thing that will make you feel comfortable is that Jesus did not invent parables. First of all, there's parables in the Old Testament, and it was part of the Eastern tradition to teach in parables. Another observation we made last week when we said that he told the parable of the sowers and then he explained it to the disciples. A lot of us, when we hear the word disciples, how many disciples were there? Anyone know? Ryan, how many disciples were there? Okay. Twelve disciples, right? Cody, how many disciples were there? Twelve, right. A lot of us, when we hear the word disciples, we're, we have been trained somehow, maybe it's the Last Supper picture or something, to think of the twelve disciples. But actually, if you read the book of Matthew and the book of Luke carefully, there were as many as 70 disciples at certain points. There were disciples that were more numerous than that, that we don't know the actual count of. So, Maybe what most of us think of when we think of the disciples with a capital D, we're thinking of the apostles themselves, but many more disciples that followed him around. During our series on the Da Vinci Code, we learned that Mary Magdalene was probably one of those people who followed him around, along with other women who may or may not have been classified as disciples. So that if it troubled you that he withdrew from the people and only explained the parable to the disciples, the disciples may have been a much larger group than you're imagining. Okay? And what he was really doing was withdrawing to, 
to see the people who wanted to learn from him. So one is to reveal the truth, okay? To make known new truths to interested hearers, people who really were interested. To make known mysteries by comparison with things already known. So there's that allegory, that story. That's the way that it shows you, okay? Now here's the one that bothers some people. To conceal truth from disinterested hearers and rebels at heart. These are from Jesus' own words. He actually says that I will conceal some of it. Now, people have speculated, why was Jesus concealing it? One is he wanted to really separate out the people who cared from the people who didn't. The people who wanted to go a step deeper and followed him up the hill and said, explain that to me, probably were the ones that needed to hear it. And the other ones who just heard a good story and went home, at least the story stayed in their mind. They probably thought about it and they kept thinking about it. But if they needed to know enough, they would seek Jesus out and go, I've been thinking about this thing for days and I can't figure it out. Tell me what it means. But he's also trying to conceal it from other people. Who were the people that were trying, look at number five, to take away truth from those who hate it and do not want it. Who did he speak in parables to a lot? Pharisees. And the reason we said last week that he spoke to the Pharisees and that he disguised the truth sometimes is because he wanted to make sure that he didn't leave them an excuse to get him on certain things. They were looking for a reason to trap him by telling stories. He wasn't saying it directly. He was saying it indirectly. And they had to interpret it a certain way. Finally, Jesus spoke in parables to fulfill prophecy. One of the prophecies about Jesus was that he was going to speak in parables so that most of Jesus' teachings came in the parables. So as a backdrop, he didn't invent it. It was a powerful teaching method that had some huge impactful meaning if you cared enough to know. And if you didn't, it sounded like a good story. Maybe it would fester. Maybe it would grow until you got to the point where you said, I need to know more. And that was his way of separating out the people who really wanted to know from the people who didn't. All right, here's our parables for tonight. We're going to start off with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. We're going to be trying to do two tonight, but we're starting parables about wealth and the end. So let's take a look at this one. This is from Luke 16. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell, Greek word Hades there, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham from afar with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Okay? We obviously have a rich man and a poor man. They're in different situations in life. Notice that when the poor man dies, there's no indication that he's even buried. It just says that Lazarus died and the angels came and carried him. The rich man died and was buried. It was very common in those days not to bury poor people. You just kind of tossed them into the garbage heap or you tossed them into the fire. That's how lowly this person was. Anyone know what's, what's unique about this one parable out of all the parables Jesus told? I may have hinted this before. What is it? Yeah, this is the only parable that Jesus told where there's actually a name in the parable, and that's Lazarus. 
Scholars are speculating about why it is that Jesus would actually give a name. Some people believe this because he really knew a guy named Lazarus, and this is a real story, that there really was a person named Lazarus, and he knows what their eternal destinies are going to be. All right, the reason I put the Greek up here is because it's fair to say that in the Greek it says Hades, which is really kind of the land of the dead. It can be hell. It can be somewhere else. And because we spent an entire CD out of our CDs on heaven talking about where did this rich man go awaiting judgment, I'm going to just leave that out there to be, you know, for you to investigate further. But it may not be the eternal lake of fire hell that you're thinking of. It's somewhere before that. But the important thing is rich, poor, when they go to the next life, it seemed like their lot is reversed. Abraham replies to him because he says, hey, just have Lazarus come and dip his finger in the water and soothe my suffering. Abraham says, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm that's been fixed, so that those who want to get from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. So really what he's saying is, we can't get to you. There's this huge divide that's between us. Even if I wanted to send Lazarus over there, I can't do it. But the important thing is Lazarus will get the good things and you'll be in torment. The rich man answered, I beg you, father, to Abraham, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. What is this parable saying if you leave it right there? Why would Jesus be telling this parable? Anyone know the context? Why is he even telling this parable? If you took it at face value and you came and you sat down in a lecture and Jesus is speaking, he goes, let me tell you a story about two men. This is how it will be. And he tells you the story. What would you get out of it? It's better not to be rich. It's better not to be rich. Is that the, that's one theme you can grab out of it. Is that, is, that, is that the theme of the parable? Let's analyze the rich man for a minute. What did the rich man do wrong? Did he cheat for his wealth? Yeah, he was self-focused. He ignored the other guy, probably. Now, this is an important rule of interpretation in the parable. Is Jesus saying that if you're rich, you're going to end up in the opposite place in the next life? Why not? If I challenge you on that and say, well, why not? Why can't you get that out of this parable? Why is that over-interpreting the parable? Yeah. Because the guy asked him to send to his brothers, and you assume if he's not necessarily if he's rich, probably his brothers are rich. Right. And so why would he bother saying, hey, help out my brothers if he does are coming here anyway? Okay, so Jesus, remember, is telling the story. So he's setting up something so that if 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 it was true that you once you're rich, you're going to hell for sure then why would you even introduce that? The brothers still have a choice, okay? So it seems at least that, that the rich man is realizing that whatever choice you make in life, you have to make before death. So at least he's realizing that. So that's easy. But the other reason that you can't over-interpret this parable to say that if you're rich in one life, you're going to hell in the next. Remember last week we said that if a parable contradicts the direct teachings of Christ in any other way or contradicts the teachings of the Bible, then we've gone astray in interpreting the parable. It is still a device in a story. In this case, we know that Jesus makes it very clear that the conditions to being in heaven in the next life is belief in him. So we can't take that meaning out of it, okay? But Ryan already pointed out, what did the rich man do wrong? He was kind of ignorant. You said it too, Jason Craig. You said like he's just, he's self-focused. He's ignoring Lazarus. 
So the meaning of this parable is it's not money that's evil. It's not riches that's evil. It's that self-focus. It's that focus away from God that he's trying to point out in this parable. Okay? Jesus is telling this parable to say, if you are wealthy and, there's an and, ignorant of the needs that are around you, like the needs of Lazarus, then you're going to find yourself in the opposite position in the next life. Not because you're wealthy, but because you are wealthy and you ignored the needs. Plus, we need to keep in mind that that also means, this is not a parable about salvation. Okay? It's not like rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven. He's just saying, be careful how you live this life. But look at this part at the bottom. The rich man starts to realize that he, for lack of a better word, is toast. <laughs> He's in torment. He's in a bad place. And he starts to think of someone else, his brothers. And he says to Abraham, if you're not going to let Lazarus come and comfort me, at least send Lazarus back to my brothers. So there's some hope that my brothers could change their ways before it's too late. Abraham says, no, we're not sending Lazarus back. Because they, meaning your brothers, already have Moses and the prophets to tell them the way to heaven. They don't need Lazarus to come back from the dead. Let them listen to them. Abraham says, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone else rises from the dead. That's the extra nugget that I find in this parable. He's standing in front of a crowd of people who are all asking this question. Remember I said in our parables, we're going to be making it come into our modern context. How many times have you heard people when they ask you this question, if Jesus wants me to believe in him so that I can go to heaven, why doesn't he show himself to me? Why is he hiding all the time? I would believe in him if he showed himself to me. Anyone ever heard somebody say that? I would believe in him if he performed some sort of miracle in front of me. How come Saul or Paul on the way to Damascus gets to have this miraculous vision of Jesus and he becomes this great apostle? Like, if Jesus did that, I would believe in him. And we're always waiting for that kind of belief. This parable answers that kind of belief question. Imagine Jesus standing in front of everybody telling this parable. He knows the aching of people's hearts that are listening. He knows that some of them would say, yeah, yeah, if you had sent Lazarus back to those brothers, they probably would have changed their ways. Because in the parable here, Abraham goes, no, we're not sending Lazarus back. It's not how it's going to work. And most of the people are like, why not? Why not send Lazarus back? If you want us to believe in you, wouldn't it be cool? Like, here's the rich man, here's Lazarus, they both die, and next week Lazarus comes back to the gate and knocks again and goes, hey, I'm back. You guys got any food? Oh, and by the way, I saw your brother, the rich man, and I know where he's at, and he wanted me to give you a message. He sent me back to you. You better change your ways and give me some food or you're going to end up where he is. And the parable spoken by Jesus answers that question in our heart. And you could almost hear Jesus like, maybe there's a tinge of irony in what he's about to say. Because he says, as he's speaking the parable, he said to him, Abraham, but it's really Jesus saying, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, 
they will not even be convinced even if somebody rises from the dead. Who's he talking about? Himself. This is why I think it's ironic, by the way, that the guy in the parable is named Lazarus. Because what happens later in Jesus' ministry is he's on the way to Jerusalem. He raises Lazarus from the dead, right? And that made everybody in Jerusalem believe in him, right? No, they crucified him. Imagine the weight that's on Jesus, knowing all things. Standing in front of a group of people, telling this story, and knowing in their heart, some of them are like, convince us that you're who you say you are. And Jesus just standing there thinking, you people, I could raise someone from the dead, and it wouldn't make a difference. You still wouldn't believe it. In fact, you could hear Jesus saying, I'm going to be raised from the dead, and you're still not going to believe it. And this parable goes so much deeper when you hear it from that perspective. Yes, it has important truths about how we care for people around us. Yes, it has important truths about the reality of the next life and how there is a judgment and we are going to be in different places. But there's a reality for us in this life that's in this parable, the words of Jesus almost aching as he's telling it. If you don't listen to Moses and the prophets, if you don't hear my words, I could rise from the dead and you won't care. I could raise somebody else from the dead and you won't care. And that answers our hearts when people say, if he showed himself to me, I would believe in him. Really? Really? Because if you're a skeptic, Jesus could rise from the dead in front of you and you'd still find a way to discredit it, to just set it aside and say, I still don't believe. And that's the irony of Jesus' words in this parable. So yes, it has that meaning, and yes, it has a meaning for us today too. Because there will be people, in fact, probably people in this room, who are waiting for Jesus to do something amazing in their life before they surrender completely to him. Here's one more. Another example of how Jesus dealt with riches. The parable of the rich fool. As he was preaching, he started talking about money because a man came up to him and started asking him to divide up wealth between him and his brother. believing Jesus to be kind of a rabbi, a judge of some kind. And Jesus basically says to him, it's not my ministry. Who am I to divide up things among you? And then he turns to the crowd and says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because a man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. We think it does in our life. We think it consists in the abundance of our possessions or we find our security in it. Jesus is saying, that's not what I'm telling you. Again, another parable about riches and money, which we're going to see a lot of them. And he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. There's another rich guy again. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store all my grains and my goods. And I'll say to myself, You have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. Notice how many times in this parable you see I. What shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. I will do this. I'll tear down barns. I, I. This man is overly concerned with himself. It's almost the exact same thing that Jesus was talking about in the other parable. A person who's concerned with themselves to the point that they're not paying any attention to anyone around them. So this person is finding comfort in their goods and they're saying, this is what I'll do. I'll build bigger and bigger barns. And then I can relax in life because I have everything stored up for myself. But, but God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? 
And Jesus actually throws in the punchline to explain it. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. This is how it will be. What is this? What does that mean? When he says, your soul is demanded of you, what does that mean in plain language? I'm sorry, what was it? You're dead. You said the grim reapers come, right? I mean, he's done. Okay? There's an irony in that, isn't there? There's like an irony of saying, okay, I spent my whole life building up these things, and in a moment, God says, let's go. And we all know you can't take that with you. Again, this is how it's going to be with anyone who's not rich towards God. Is God saying that it's wrong to be rich? No, he's actually giving us a formula for how to be rich. How do you be rich towards God? Anyone want to volunteer and answer that? How are you rich towards God? What is it? Give. Rich in good deeds, rich in faith, rich in anything. Giving back to God. Okay? All right, so that's the meaning of the parable. Again, the simple, honest face meaning is if you're the kind of person who's storing up everything for yourself, hoping that that's going to save your life, in this example, the Lord comes and says, you just forfeited your life. But here's the device in the parable that we need to look at. In this parable, he uses the device of taking people to the ends of their life. He does this commonly. We're going to see it in other parables. What he does is he says, look, let's be real. Everybody who's listening to me, meaning Jesus is speaking this parable, and even everybody who's sitting in this room right now as we repeat Jesus' words, what are we really concerned about? Are we concerned about being rich towards God? I mean, if we were really honest with ourselves, we're not concerned about being rich towards God. We're worried about what we're going to do tomorrow. We're worried about what we're going to do today. We're worried about what we're going to eat, where we're going to go, what we're going to hang out. How do I get that thing that I want? How do I build that career I'm working on? How do I get whatever it is that I need for my comfort? How many of us are truly concerned right now about the needs of the needy? Like so concerned that we can't hardly sit in this room because we need to get on with the business of figuring out a way to provide for the needy. Maybe I would venture to guess none of us. And Jesus knew that when he was speaking to people. And he knows that as these words still are spoken tonight. Most of us are inwardly focused. We're no different than the rich fool. Maybe we're not rich the way he was that he could build these huge barns. But we're concerned with storing up things for ourselves. So here's the device that he uses in the parable. What he's doing is he's trying to shake people out of their comfort and saying, this guy, his life was demanded of him. Imagine for a moment what it would be like right now if your life was demanded of you while you sat in this room. That's the kind of device that Jesus was employing in this parable. And you'll see it again in other parables when we go forward. He was always saying, watch out, be on your guard, act like it's the last day. The parable of the maids, the parable of the watchful servants. There's all these people where he's saying those guys were having a good time, partying, they weren't getting ready, and that's when the master came back. That's when their life ended while they were too busy concerned about the wrong things. And this parable is just one of the many that he uses with that device. That while everybody's partying and having a good time and worrying about themselves, their life is over. And as they're going up, the irony is Jesus is asking them, well, who's going to get all the stuff you have now? I recently preached on this parable, and I, I thought about it so deeply because I thought... Yes, it's true that Jesus says to him, who's going to get what you have prepared for yourself? You know, and you could think the guy's thinking, oh, duh, I mean, this whole, thing, this whole life is wasted. But I don't think that's really the deepest thing that he was worried about. I think if you were on your way up, 
or down, whichever way you're going. If you're on your way somewhere, realizing that this life is over, what you're really the, more, the most concerned about in a moment like that when you see everything you have is like, what a waste. I could have done so much more with what I have. And here, Jesus is using that device. So how do we use it? How do we use this parable in our own lives? How do we use that device? Have that same conversation with Jesus that this person is having. Jesus is inviting us to evaluate our lives from that perspective. If you were right now going to have the conversation with Jesus where he goes, all right, it's done. And maybe he's not saying to you like, here, you fool. Maybe he's just saying, hey, Ben, hey, Dave, it's over, let's go. What have we done in our lives that's important? How did we care to be rich towards God? That's the parable device that he's using. The application It's very hard in our lifestyles to get out of that state of denial. It's very hard in our lifestyles to be in a place where we can live, where we're constantly focused on what God wants us to focus on, to see things through his eyes, to have a kind of heavenly perspective. Because sometimes I feel like he's looking down at us in his head going, oh man, you're spending so much of your life, John, doing these things. And you're not getting to what's important in life. All these years that you're spending spinning. And sometimes the only time you would have clarity is when he comes down and says, all right, that's it. Let's just go right now. You're like, wait, I didn't get to, I didn't get to finish. I didn't get to do all these things I was going to do. He's like, well, what were you doing? Pay attention to what's important because in the moment that you think you have peace, comfort, life, merriment, all those things, your life could be gone. Do we live like that? That's the hardest thing to ask. Now, he does say this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich towards God. It's going to be bad news, he's saying. But he's also reminding us that everybody's going to die and we need to live in a way that makes sense now. That's a hard parable from that perspective. It's a hard parable that Jesus is saying, I'm going to call you up one day and say, let's go. It's time to go right now. And on your way up, you know that you're going to have unfinished business. The question is, can you finish it? I'd like to live in this kind of thing where we remind ourselves of our position in life. Where we don't allow each other to, to, get, to just live in denial. Where we hold each other accountable to say like, hey, are you living purposefully for what God needs us to be doing? Or being. You don't have to be doing all the time. You could just be being with God if you want to. Okay? That's one thing I would like us to do. Right? But, you know, just, just, so I think just having that mindset and things in perspective uh, all the time is what really would help. We're going to be looking at a couple of parables. One, when it tells us that we need to be doing what you just described, which is making things for the kingdom. And at the same token, on the other side, we need to be working on being careful that we don't just sit idly by, but we have a duty, like you said, not just to be, which is important, but that he's also left us clearly in some of the parables and even in some of the direct teachings, some tasks that need to be accomplished. I mean, like, does this very departing words weren't like, okay, I'll see you later, just be brothers and sisters and I'll come back soon. His departing words were, go and make disciples of people and preach my gospel and baptize these people. So he even gave us a list that you could do. Even in the Old Testament, there's lists of things to do. Like, you know, here's some things that you would do. What do you require of me, O Lord? And like Micah 5.8, like do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with God. There are things that we can be doing, you know? And I guess as a, as a side note, a footnote, a lot of people are always like, well, what's God's will for my life? Well, sometimes he's going to have a specific, like, here's the will. I'm handing it to you. Here you go. Do this for me, like a prescription. 
But if you're not in that mode right now because he doesn't have a direct calling, there's a bunch of things that he's got that are applicable to everyone. Like the Great Commandment, the Great Commission. Like if you don't have anything better to do, start working on some of those. And I got to be careful because I sound like I'm saying we got to be do, 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 do. That's why I said we also sometimes just have to be, be, be. But it's just empty to be one or the other. You've got to be both. Have the right relationship and then do the things that he commands of us to love one another. We're going to see next week in a parable that he directly commands us to do certain things. Actually, two parables side by side. Okay, so you're right on it and, and next week you'll see which, how he commands those in a parable. But I want to be clear that the device is that one that says, I want to hold you to remember that your life will end and then I'm going to have an account with you. And you'll see that also, yeah. We're always going to want to do more. Like, we're always going to be like, we could have done more, we could have done more, we could have done more. So it's like, you can, you can go out there and you can try to save the world. Sure. But it's like, we're only one person. Let me answer that, that question, that comment this way. I agree with you that there could always be something more we could do. That's number one. And I also agree with you that we need to work together to do some of those things. But here's where I want to push back using Jesus' own device, not my own. The device is, let's pretend it's the end of your life, okay? Would we live our life in a different way if we knew we had limited time? See, most of us live under the denial that we have unlimited time. Most of us never think that it's going to end at any moment. Most of us think we have a lot more moments left. That's why I said when you go to a funeral, like you have this unbelievable eye-opening experience where you realize... They're dead, and I'm dead, and everybody here is going to die. Like, you start to grapple with the reality of it, and, and it's probably unhealthy to live in that reality every moment. But when you say, we could always do more, yeah, we could always do more. But most of us are doing it very little. But if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, you'd do unrationalized things. Yes, that's true, and that's exactly the point. That's Jesus' device, not mine. I'd, I'd probably give you some wise, worldwide advice, like, don't go crazy, don't be nuts, you know, let's be, let's do it slowly, okay? Jesus was the one who said, live like it's the last day, you know? And you're like, well, Jesus, that's crazy. And that's why what Lena was saying is, what can we be doing that could get us out of here? I'm not saying go nuts, but maybe Jesus is a little bit. Because you're right, you could always do more. You can go crazy. We could just not be here tonight. We could not go to work tomorrow. We just sell all our stuff tomorrow. And then what happens if he doesn't come back? But the, the thing about that is, sure, I understand your point about being a little bit temperate and moderate. The problem is we're all over here. We're all living like in 20 years from now, I might do something for the Lord that matters once I get all these other things. And I'm, I'm generalizing. There might be people in here like, what are you talking about, man? I'm living for the Lord every single moment of my life. All those people raise their hand just so I can see where you are. Okay. The rest of us are always planning to do something for the Lord. We might be doing little things along the way, but we're not doing it like it was the last day. We're not doing it like it mattered and tomorrow might be the end. We're doing it like we've still got another 40 years to go between now and retirement, and we're doing it at our pace. We're going slowly. And Jesus is saying in this parable to the rich fool, he's saying, you're an idiot. But to us, he's also saying, Maybe you're not as big of an idiot, but don't think that you have unlimited time either to just sit around and plod your way through it because I could come to you at any moment and say, let's go. The temptation when you read this parable for us in the Bible is to go, I don't like that guy. I'm not like him at all. I don't want to store up stuff. I don't even have stuff. I'm poor. I'm not like him. And if you look at this parable carefully, it doesn't just apply to rich people. It applies to anybody who's not rich towards God. 
but most of us are worried about our own things and building up our own security. And look, we have that temptation, whether it's in school, um, our, you know, whatever we're doing to, to store up things. Like, how do you make a lifelong commitment to live like it's almost the last day? I'm not going to go crazy and say, let's just give away all our money, move the mountains, and bang on tambourines, okay? But how do we get closer to that? And I don't mean like a one-time thing, because that's always the cheesy way out. Let's, go, let's just go to a homeless kitchen and feed some people for a day and feel better about ourselves. I mean, if you went home right now tonight and said, you know what, I just have too many clothes. I'm, starting to, I'm just going to take these and give them away. You know, because I don't need like 70 this and 10 pairs of jeans and all this. I'm going to live on three or four of them. And even if God doesn't come back tomorrow, I could still live off of the less stuff because I'm not doing enough. Now, that's just one example. I don't mean to constantly focus on the poor. But you might just go home and say, you know what? If he's coming back in a year even, I should be out there and moving to another country and talking to people about God or moving to my neighbor's house. That's the thing that we're not doing. We're just kind of living life like it's unlimited. Like we all have a long, long runway to go. And God's like saying, your runway would be a lot shorter than you think. And by the way, like I said, it doesn't have to always be about the poor. There may be somebody in your life that we're not talking to about God because we think, eh, we'll get around to it. There may be something that God is asking us to do individually. Like he's already told us, like, I wish you would move in this direction. We're like, yeah, I'm going to get there, man. Let me just do these other things first. And it's those kind of things that we know that we're, we're, we're the type of people that live in denial. We're the type of people that live in a place where we like to do it. And I, I'm not trying to say this to throw out a guilt trip. That's not the point. All I'm saying is there's a powerful meaning in this. And we often skip through this parable and just go, I'm not that guy. And we very much are that guy. In a different way, Jesus is reminding us the end is going to come and then we're going to see how you did. And maybe you didn't build up barns, but maybe you didn't do anything else either. And that's going to be just as tragic. Okay, next week we move on to two more that come right off of these things. And Jason Craig hit it right on the head about what we can be doing. That's the parable of the talents. And then there's a couple parables about the watchful servants, again, about people sitting around the household wondering if the master is ever going to come back. We're going to cover a couple of those next week and then move on through some more on riches. And they get increasingly difficult. Next week's parables both are tough to deal with. I think even tougher than these two. You know, I like, I think the comment somebody made, like, oh, parables. I thought that was going to be like, you know, reading the uh, fairy tales or something. Like, they're, they're not, they have tough messages in them. That's why he used them, okay? Let's pray and do a little bit more worship and close up, hang out tonight a little bit. Holy Spirit, I feel like there's a genuine struggle with some of the words because these are difficult for us to swallow. And Lord, that might be the reason that you spoke in parables when you taught these things because to teach these words directly might either have offended people or just turned them off. They probably couldn't have understood it. But to see them in stories that were outside of themselves, maybe they were easier to accept. Lord, tonight we need your supernatural intervention. Let your Holy Spirit work in these two stories that we have before us in this week. Bug us with these stories. Don't let us just put them aside. Let us try to dwell on them and try to understand their deepest meanings. Let them kind of rattle around in our head and make us feel either uncomfortable or interested or curious about what their meanings are. Take that story of the rich fool, Lord. What was he thinking when he was going up with you? And how did he evaluate his life in terms of what he did? How did you evaluate his life? And Lord, even Lazarus and the rich man, what was that rich man thinking? What would he have done had you given him a chance to go back again? How could we learn those things, Lord, from you? What's the ache of your heart? How far did you have to go and people still don't believe in you? Lord, let those things just kind of drive into our hearts deeply tonight. Let us 
dwell on them in conversation tonight as we fellowship. Let us just think about them as we're driving in our cars this week and come back and wrestle with more of your words. Change us with your words, Lord. We pray these things in your name. Amen.